Hello, this is Martin McKay from the Network Security Podcast. And this is Chris John Riley from the Eurotrash Security Podcast. You're listening to the official podcast for the 24th Annual First Conference. This will be held in Malta on June 17th through June 22nd of 2012. For more information about FIRST, please visit www.first.org. And now we join our interview in progress. So we're kicking off the annual FIRST conference podcast with a, a quick interview here with Lance Spitzner from the, the SANS Securing the Human Initiative. Lance, can you do a quick introduction on who you are and a little bit maybe about SANS and the Securing the Human program? Sure. Okay. Uh, my name is Lance Spitzner, as you mentioned. I am the training director for SANS Securing the Human program. Uh, as many of you know, the SANS Institute is a very large security training organization with conferences and events all around the world. Securing the Human is a small subset of that within SANS. We specialize in training not security people, but the non-security people, you know, 99% of the rest of the world. Our goal is to help organizations create high-impact security awareness programs. And when I say impact, going beyond compliance and really changing behavior and helping organizations become more secure. That's really my passion. That's my full-time job. And that's what I've been doing for probably about three to five years now. So, I mean, how was it you you actually got into social engineering, securing the human stuff? Because I know you, you originally started off working in the military on tanks. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's quite a long and tangled process. Uh, I started in the military. I was an officer, a tank officer, which means I drove around in really big tanks, which is something I really wanted to do. But after four years, I decided to get out and got my master's. And while I was getting my master's, I became very interested in technology, internet, things like that. This is probably around 97, 98 and became an intern at a Sun Microsystems VAR. So I got to learn all about the internet through Sun Microsystems, which is at the time a great place to learn, learning Unix, networking. And since I was the new guy at the company, I was the intern at the company. They had this new technology, something called a firewall. Nobody knew what a firewall was back then. Nobody really cared about security. So they said, well, just stick it to the new guy. So I was the new guy. Um, they sent me off to firewall training, checkpoint firewall, and that was kind of really where I started. It was, you know, love at first sight. I, you know, this whole internet, but combined with security, was something I was very passionate about, and I had a lot of blend in from the military experience. One of the things you're often trained in the military is the concept: know your enemy, military intelligence. If you know how the bad guy is going to fight, you can better defend against the bad guy. So when I went into information security, that's the firewall training, things like that, one of the questions I was asking is, you know, who am I defending against? Who is attacking me? How will they attack my organization? Why? Now, these may seem like obvious questions nowadays, but back in 97, 98, no one was really asking these questions. One or two people, maybe like Dan Farmer, Vitsa Venema, folks like that. But one of the areas I really wanted to study and learn is, you know, who the bad guys are. And so I had to learn a lot on my own. That's where this whole concept of honeypots, honey nets really came in. I wanted to start deploying honeypots and honey nets, but there really wasn't any very good sources out there. And the other challenge, though, was to deploy these types of technologies, you had to be a good coder. Unfortunately, I was a really bad coder. 
but I knew firewalls. So instead of developing and coding a honeypot, I was like, well, why not just put out real systems, put them behind firewalls. Firewalls is something I understand and let the bad guys hack into them. So from there, the HoneyNet project started. This is like 98, 99. And over five to 10 years, I was very actively involved in the cyber intel field, you know, deploying honeypots, learning what the bad guys were doing, and sharing that information with the community. And it really grew because at the time, there really was not a lot of work in that field. Of course, nowadays, cyber intelligence is an entire industry. So around 2005, 2004, 2005, 2006, I really saw a trend change where the bad guys were no longer hacking computers but hacking people. And in part, around 2004, 5, 6, that's because our technology started getting a lot better. You know, like Service Pack 2 for Windows XP where the firewall was on by default, services turned off by default. Things like that. So the old days, you know, the golden days of just worms spreading on their own really dropped. So the bad guys changed their tools and techniques to focus first on the human. You want to infect a computer? Ask a human to infect a computer. So starting in about 2005, 2006, my focus and passion really shifted to the human element. And from there, it's just continued to grow to this point nowadays where I'm very fortunate. I work full time at SANS doing my passion focusing on doing nothing but helping organizations secure their employees. Uh, Lance, you made a, a comment at the very beginning that I thought was was interesting. You talked about training that goes beyond just compliance. And, and how does that differ in your mind? And how does it differ in, in what you're effectively seeing out there in the real world? Well, you just nailed my number one frustration with security awareness and education. And I've heard a lot of people tell me before, Lance, it can't work. I've seen organizations have security awareness, and it never, never had an impact. Most programs I've seen in the past were designed purely for compliance. Meet the minimum standard, get that check on the box, and that's our only goal. And as a result, an awareness training consists maybe of a once-a-year lunch and learn or maybe a couple newsletters a year then people are stunned that there's no behaviors changed. How could there be? One of the things I like to compare securing people to is operating systems. You know, we understand operating systems. They store, process, and transfer information. And we spent the past 15 years securing operating systems. Well, people are nothing more than another operating system. They store, process, and transfer information. We've just done nothing in the past 15 years to secure them. Now, if we patched a computer once a year, would we consider those operating systems secure? No way. But we're applying this once-a-year approach to people and then trying to figure out why this doesn't work. So one of the biggest fundamental changes I'm really pushing in the world of people is it's something that has to be continuous, just like patching operating systems, keeping them updated. You have to be continuously updating and reminding people and reinforcing on key topics to ultimately drive change, change behaviors, to reduce risk and help secure the organization. I guess the main problem there is really getting some some kind of C-level buy-in you know, to, to really implement that kind of scheme because the schemes that I've seen, as you said, are kind of a maybe once a year, someone will do a penetration test and then come out with the results and say, look, this is how vulnerable we are. How, how do you really get that kind of buy-in from the management to do that kind of program? That's a good question. In some ways, it's like the same question you remember 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we had to sell security to organizations. Security awareness, for some reason, is very immature in that 
most people get security nowadays. I don't have to sell security to organizations. They're like, yep, yep, you know, we need the firewalls, the antivirus, the DLP, incident response, things like that. But then you bring out security awareness, and security awareness is about 10 years behind the rest of security. So the first goal is, like you said, getting management buy-in. And for different organizations, different approaches. Depends on what their goals are. One thing I first of all caution is don't just play that compliance card. If you say we need awareness training so we're compliant, management's first thing they're going to ask is what's the minimum amount I have to pay to ensure we're PCI DSS? I know ISO 27001, HIPAA, FERPA, GLBA, whatever. And then we don't want that because we need to invest a little bit more. So there's a couple of different ways you can do it. I mean, one of the things I've wanted to do is how much money are you spending on securing each and every one of your computers? Think about hardenings, secure builds, antivirus, any other types of software. You know, 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars a computer. How much are we spending per person? Five dollars, two dollars, one dollar, whatever, something along those lines. What about reducing risk? Have we had any recent human-based incidents? You know, number of infections. What if I can reduce the number of infections from 100 a month to 10 a month or something like that? I worked with one very large uh, defense industry organization who, when they rolled out their awareness program, the number of infected computers alone dropped so dramatically they freed up half of an FTE who could then focus on more advanced attacks. The other thing when I'm describing value to security awareness is once again, security awareness seems to be about 10 years behind any other type of security control in that most controls help reduce risk. They don't eliminate risk. Firewalls can't stop all attacks. Antivirus can't detect all malware. IDS sensors can't detect all exploits, things along those lines. So people will go, Lance, we deploy an awareness program. You know, we reduce the number of people that click on a link, but there's still always going to be somebody that clicks on the link, uses an insecure password, does something wrong. Well, awareness is nothing more than another control. It reduces risk. It can't eliminate it. This doesn't mean it's failure. This means it's nothing more than another control. The other area I really see adding value is this whole idea of why are we focusing on just prevention? Why not detection and response? If we teach people how to identify or indicators of a compromise and then report those indicators, they now become the front line of incident response, human sensors, if you will. So think about phishing or spear phishing. What happens if we can reduce the number of people that fall victim by 80 or 90 percent? But there's still that 10% that fall victim. What happens if that small percentage that fall victim, when they click on that link, they go, uh-oh, I made a mistake. That was probably an attack. I better report it. So even if phishing or spear phishing successfully gets into the organization, if we have people reporting it immediately, now the incident response team knows that they have a successful breach or there's been a breach and they can instantly respond. So I really want to pump up the volume in the world of awareness by not only just doing prevention, but detection and incident response, which once again may be uh, able to make an easier sell to management. I guess uh, one of the problems that maybe you touched on a little bit there is that there doesn't seem to be any kind of key performance indicators for how badly we're doing at the moment. Most social engineering attacks, if they manage to get some information from someone they're, they're calling, 
that person will very likely never know that they gave information to a false person or they gave information that they shouldn't have given out. So I guess that's kind of hard to sell to management because management aren't aware that there is actually an ongoing problem in the organization. That's very true. First of all, a couple of things. What I would love to see is, you know, something like a root cause analysis. You know, we had, you know, 13 breaches or, you know, so many infected systems or we've had some, you know, if APT is the buzzword the organization's worried about, we've had insiders on the internal network for three months, six months, some type If they do a root cause analysis of how those incidents happen, then you would, you know, go back and really see it's really the human element, where the human training. For example, let's go back all the way to Conficker. Think about it. When Conficker first came out, variant A, it really didn't spread that much. If you remember, variant A was the one that exploited the vulnerability in the Windows file sharing service, the SMB, the actual exploiting the vulnerability. Conficker really took off and started spreading when variant B came out. I believe it was variant B that added two additional propagation methods, brute forcing, network share passwords, and the use of infected USB sticks, which both involve a human. So here we have configure. People think worm. People think patching. And yet the worm really didn't take off and massively infect organizations until it used the human as its propagation methods. So that's where sometimes that root cause analysis really comes in handy. The other thing I've been really working on with the community on is um, – and this is one of the things I'm very excited about is starting to build a community of people really wanting to make a change is like you brought up the problem of metrics. How do we measure how vulnerable people are? How do we measure if we're having an impact? So one of the things we're working on is identifying about 10 different metrics used for measuring impact. And the reason I think this is important is most metrics I've seen in the past about awareness and education never measured impact. They measured progress of the program. We've trained 83% of our organization. We sent out six newsletters last year, things like that. I want to know we're you know, changing behavior and having an impact. How many people are falling victim to phishing attacks? What's the number of infected systems each month? Things along those lines. So that's another area we're really trying to work on and improve. It's funny that you mentioned Conficker and, and the human element. I remember working at a company at the time uh, I Love You came out, and one of our engineers kept kept that going again and again. And after the fourth or fifth time he'd infected the network, we asked him, why? We, we've told you not to do this. He's like, oh, I thought this time it might really be somebody who loves me. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and to be honest, uh, you have to be honest. When it comes to people, you can change the behavior of most people. There are going to be a certain very small percentage, the outliers, whose behavior you will not be able to change, no matter how much security awareness training you do. So something your organization has to be prepared is what are we going to do with that small percentage whom we simply can't change behaviors? And then some type of enforcement has to come in. I mean, do you punish them? Do you take their pay? Uh, ultimately, do you fire them? And you know how a university would operate on that is very different than I've seen, say, financials or defense industry or things like that. But that's something else an organization has to be prepared for. I guess it's, uh, it's kind of hard to, to fire someone based on, on the fact that they're vulnerable to attacks. It depends. If your organization has a very low tolerance to risk and in your organization, you know, you say, we're rolling out this training, you have to take this training, you develop a very secure culture, and then when people fail to still follow – 
I, I've seen you know what one financial organization I know somebody was trained not to send company sensitive data to their private email address. They sent it to their private email address. Three days later, they were walked out of the company. Remember when Anonymous of about a month ago leaked the teleconference recordings of law enforcement conversation? I believe it was between FBI and uh, Scotland Yard. That was how Anonymous got in. I believe somebody on the European side, Scotland Yard, had violated procedure and had forwarded the teleconference information to their personal email address. And their personal email address had already been compromised, and then that's how Anonymous got the information and snuck into the conference call. Yeah, I guess that's the kind of thing you don't really see on an incident response form when, you, when you're reviewing what happened. You don't see that someone was stupid enough to forward something to their personal account and have easily guessable password reset questions. That's one of the reasons why I'm always very interested in the root cause analysis. Changing uh, tracks just a little bit, I mean, how do you see companies dealing with uh, social engineering penetration testing has become quite popular over the last two to three years, possibly even longer. But do, do you see people really gaining benefits out of those kind of tests? For like a phishing assessment, the answer would be it depends. If you do it just once, the people are not getting a benefit. Management may get a benefit because you do it once and then you understand just how vulnerable the humans are. For example, I work with one of the instructors at SANS. Their company specializes in penetration testing. As part of penetration test they were once doing, they sent out a phishing email. It was a, a more of a targeted phishing email to 100 people in the organization. When they sent that phishing email to 100 people in the organization, very small subset, 420 people fell victim. In other words, the phishing emails had been forwarded. So I know this was a very good metric to demonstrate to management how vulnerable the people were. But from a training perspective, it has no value. You can't do it once. What has tremendous value is if you do phishing assessments, say, every month. And you send out a phishing assessment once a month, people fall victim. And if they fall victim, you immediately let them know, explain to them how they could have figured out was a phishing email. I see that as just one of the many ways you can do effective reinforcement. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good way of dealing with it. Certainly, as you said, a, a once-only test doesn't really prove anything other than to management that there is an issue there that needs to be dealt with. I guess the next step is maybe... Maybe give us a couple of pointers to someone who's interested in setting up a program within their company or is already going through the process. Can you give us a couple of, of definite do's and don'ts, maybe a couple of bullet points where people can say, this is what I really, really should do just to kick things off? Yeah, absolutely. Most organizations actually have what they consider a security awareness program. I'll often do a talk and I'll have you know, 100 people in the room and I'll say, how many of you have a security awareness program? And 90 of them will raise their hand. And then I'll ask, how many of you like it? And then almost everybody will put their hand down. There'll be like two or three hands left. And then I'll say, it doesn't count if you're in charge of your own awareness program. And then they'll all put their hands down. Uh, the big problem you have is this. There's ultimately two components to a high-impact awareness program. It's what I call the what and the how. What are the key topics you're going to focus on? The how part is how you're going to communicate those topics on. And to be honest, most organizations I see are making mistakes in both areas. 
in the what part, the topics you communicate, there's no analysis of what they're going to teach people. They just figure out what are the most common topics. We're here to reduce risk. Identify the topics that are going to reduce the most risk in your organization and then focus on those few topics. The fewer topics you focus on, the more likely you will change those behaviors because you can repeat, reinforce those few behaviors. A lot of organizations, especially compliance-driven, basically all they do in their awareness program is teach their entire security policy. There's no work done on what are the key things we need to focus on. Let's get rid of all the chaff and really focus on those key points. And that's the one area I see awareness programs fail. The other one, and even more often, is the how part. When you find those topics, you have to continually reinforce them at a minimum every month. And you have to think like marketing. Unfortunately, most awareness programs I ran by security people. A lot of people in our community were good at security, were bad at communicating. You have to think of awareness as a product and a product you're going to market. So you want marketing, communication style, things like that. So what you end up having to do is figure out ways to engage people. And one of the most successful ways I've seen in engaging people in an awareness program is don't communicate it like you must do this for the benefit of your organization. You cannot do that because it might hurt the organization. Think about it. 80% of the topics of your awareness program, I bet, apply to people's personal life. Emails, social networking, passwords, mobile devices. When you communicate your awareness program, the how part, focus on how this benefits them. This awareness program is about how to secure yourself, your family, and your organizations. So, for example, when I'm putting together awareness programs, one of the most engaging topics, one of the best ways to really engage people is to have training on how to protect your kids online, how to protect your personal computer, because this applies to their personal life. These are things they want to know about, and they really engage people. Yes, it may not apply directly to your organization, but by including these topics, A, people get engaged and they want to watch. Two, ultimately, one of my goals is not for people to have two sets of behaviors, you know, behave insecurely at home. Oh, now I'm at work. I've got to change my behavior. Now I will be secure. Take a step back. Make security part of their DNA. So they're following the same behaviors, the same processes when they're using email at home, when they're using their computer at home, their mobile device at home, as at work. So what happens in the awareness programs are less about to the benefit of the organization or organization specific, about 80% of it can be personal life also. So a lot of the ways it's just how you communicate it. The other area and one of the first key steps I always recommending and starting is creating a steering committee. Remember, awareness is going to touch everyone in the organization. You cannot create it in a vacuum. Create an advisory board, a steering committee of six to ten people representing different departments in your organization. The things like legal, audit, privacy, marketing, accounts payable, communications, training, human resources. And these representatives, these volunteers, and you, by volunteers, you can always find somebody in each one of these groups interested in security awareness. 
they come in and they provide guidance. So you develop your plan, the step-by-step process of what you're going to teach and how you're going to teach it. And you create this execution plan. Then you send it to the steering committee and they provide input. In general, I find up to 20% of your plan can change based on your their input. No, no, you forgot this. Maybe communicate that. Training requires this. Add that. So the steering committee helps create this plan. You get management approval from the plan, and then you execute the plan. And this steering committee is not just a short-term thing. It's long-term. It's part of the long-term life cycle of your security awareness program. So the steering committee is always providing input on how to improve. Some big key advantages here are also, A, when you approach management with your plan, you can say this is a consensus project. We've had input from all the members of the organization. Also, the members of your steering committee, the advisory board, become ambassadors, help explaining to others why you're doing the program, the value of the program, or helping to answer questions. So, for example, if you go to the um, securingthehuman.org website, securingthehuman.org, I have all all sorts of free resources there on walking you through this process. An example, you know, template of an execution plan, how to build your steering committee, how to identify the key topics in your awareness program, different ways to communicate or market your awareness topics, things like that. Long story short, If you want to do awareness right, if you want to go beyond compliance and have an impact, it's not easy. It takes a lot of planning, and that's where I see most awareness programs fail. There's no real plan. There's no real objectives. There's real no marketing or anything like that. And to change behaviors, you need a good, strong plan. I think that's given us a a number of points to think on. One of the things I did want to bring up, the Ouch newsletter, which is one of the resources you link on securingthehuman.org. And the Ouch newsletter is uh, it's aimed more at Joe on the street and less, less towards technology people. Is that right? Absolutely. So what happens is we have people approaching us. You know, Lance, this is great, but we're a smaller organization. What about some type of monthly reinforcement? So we do this monthly newsletter. Uh, we actually have a different senior SANS instructor uh, be a guest editor. So if we're doing, say, mobile devices, we'll get the SANS instructor that's an expert on mobile devices. For example, Joshua Wright. And he'll help lead it. And then we'll have the community members help review the newsletter. And then we'll put out the newsletter every month. Something we're very proud of is we know awareness is a global problem. So we actually publish Ouch in, I believe, 11 different languages now. Just download the PDF or the newsletter and share it internally as part of their own awareness program. And that's a Creative Commons licensed, is that right? Absolutely. So people can then use that internally, forward it on to, to the friends and family? Absolutely. Great. Well, I think you've given us a lot to think about. I appreciate your time and I uh, hope to see you in Malta at the conference. Oh, looking forward to it. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the official podcast of the 24th Annual First Conference in Malta. You can find out more about FIRST at www.first.org. See you in Malta. Welcome.